And hello and welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org and on iTunes at College Radio. And today is Wednesday, December 5th, 2012. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. And I'll, I'll tell you, it seems like only yesterday that I was saying, this is January whatever, 2012. <laughs> Where did the year go? Somebody tell me. Um, in any case, my guest for the entire hour is activist and writer Robert Whitner. It's going to be a sort of hybrid show with talk about his books and writing and his activism in Hawaii working to protect marine life, uh, the beautiful fish, the lovable sea turtles, the necessary and gorgeous coral reefs that we all get to go and enjoy, especially those of us who don't live there. We get to go there and uh, go to Hawaii and and play and, and uh, revel in the beauty. He was on my summer show, the DeMarco Polo Show, and uh, we talked more about his activism. You can find the show on the KUCI website under DeMarco Polo, um, but we're going we're gonna to be all over the map on this one, so uh, stay with us. I think, I think it'll be a good one. If you have any questions for Robert or me during the show, you can text me at 949-337-2752. And uh, I'll, I'll see what, what you have to say. Hi, Robert. Hi, Barbara. How are you? Good. Thanks for coming back on. This time, uh, probably a little more about writing and books than about activism and fish. But we're definitely going to go there a lot because uh, of all that seems to be happening over there. But, you know, I really would love to begin um, hearing you talk about sort of how you... Um, how you are able to write and produce books and also run um, a string of snorkel shops across Hawaii. How, how you kind of, how you discipline yourself to get the writing done and when you're so busy in, in other ways, you know, I mean, I think that's a problem so many of us share. Well, since the name of the show is Writers on Writing, I think that um, it, it, it will be no secret to many of the listeners that um, you know, you often hear the question, how do you have the discipline to sit down and do it every day? It's not a discipline, it's a compulsion. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've done it for more decades than I would like to count. And as you know, every life has high points and low points. And I can tell you, high times, good times, I get there because I want to see what happens next. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, you know, getting back on the court and hitting the ball again. Uh, you just do it. And as far as being able to do it and run the business, I have good crew. It's my <laughs> secret to success. Uh, you know, and, and I'll, as you say, we're going to be all over the board. I'll jump back and, the for, back and forth between uh, the literary world and the business world. Sure. I realize, and I, I do have a natural aptitude for business. I'm not sure where it uh, came from. I asked my mother. She says, oh, your father wasn't stupid. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I learned early on in a business, there's, uh, if you go to the uh, insurance column they have a, a, a kind of insurance called key man insurance where you can insure yourself if anything happens to you then the insurance company pays the business a certain amount of money and I thought boy what a what an awful thing to be key man because if you're key man your business has to be worth less mm-hmm. your own business is only worth as much as your presence and and I for one would <laughs> WC feels that on the whole I'd rather be in Philadelphia or somewhere else <laughs> Uh, and so I, I've made it another, this is a discipline, to back out at every opportunity. Now, hiring people takes money, but as soon as I had money, I would hire people to do most of the things that I had done and then try to back out. And I think that really enhances the value of any business if you can make yourself less critical mm-hmm. uh, to, the, uh, you know, to the enduring uh, business itself. So you're able to uh, delegate. <laughs> They don't even do that. They don't let me play with matches anymore, <laughs> and, I, and I love it. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's family. I mean, you know, my crew's been with me for for ages. Mm-hmm. Well, you have a lot of a lot a lot of writing published. You have books. Your most recent book is Flame Angels, a novel of Oceana, published by Iguana Books out of Toronto. That came out this year. You have other books. You have stories. You you have 
things that have been published in the Hawaii Review and Sports Illustrated, etc. Do you um, did you start with short pieces, with uh, short stories, with essays, with articles, or did you kind of start with books? How'd you do it? I think everybody starts short, and I, and I've thought about this myself. I think my first short story was in the eighth grade, age thirteen, and. It was a silly little thing that had a beginning and a middle and an end with a few characters doing outrageous things, and, um, and it was fun. That was my, my first uh, leap off the cliff. Uh, and from there, um, I think I would not have gone to college uh, if not for the Vietnam War. Hmm. Uh, I, I'm that vintage. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, we don't need to go in that. <laughs> There's another a board to go all over. But uh, in those days, you had to have a major, and um, at the uh, really low-grade university I attended, uh, one of the options was was English literature with a specialty in uh, creative writing. And call me old-fashioned, I have never felt that this sort of thing could be taught. Of course, I'm wrong to some extent. Certain techniques can be taught. And again, to use a sports analogy, uh, the rudiments and fundamentals of anything can be taught. But it's from the very beginning, soon after the very beginning, you need to move out on your own. So I never believed that a university context was uh, a good place to learn. I remember I took one course called uh, Narration 50, and the requirement was to write four short stories in a semester, and a semester at that time was four and a half months. About two years later, I was, uh, uh, it's a long story, and I'm going to keep it short. I got a job with a newspaper in the South, and uh, I had to write. I woke up to crime and accidents, and then I went to uh, hard news, and then a, a feature for Sundays. I was writing, on average, two to three newspaper stories, and this was, you know, Southern conservative format uh, journalism, but it was more writing in a week than I did in four years of college. And, and that's what gets it. And, again, to belabor the, the sports image, you know, the, the, when you hit the ball over the net at the 50,000th time, it's going to be with more control and accuracy than the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that point was made, I thought, fairly well in the book Outliers. Yes, I was just thinking of that. Uh, you know, when he talked about the Beatles and everyone thought the Beatles were magic, he said, well, people don't remember that they, they played all-nighters for years in Germany for no money, and it was a crazy, unhealthy life. But, but playing and singing and composing was second nature to those guys. There's only one way you get the second nature. People do have natural aptitudes, but they only go so far. It sets you up to develop skills. If you don't develop them, they don't go uh, any farther. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. Right. I think he said something, what did he say, you've got to devote 10,000 hours to whatever it is you're, you're uh, hoping to uh, be successful at, whether it's the arts, business, whatever. Yeah, the, the problem with that statement is people start tallying their hours. <laughs> okay, am I there yet? Uh, <laughs> and you'd have to devote full stop, period. There's no number of hours. Uh, some people get lucky and get it early, and some people just keep on getting it. And, I, and that's even luckier. I feel like I'm, you know, developing all the time. So when you came to, when you went to Hawaii, um, I assume you were writing. Yeah. And somehow you got involved in uh, the snorkel business. Well, when I came to Hawaii, that was on another wild scheme. <laughs> <laughs> And I wasn't writing uh, for about two or three years because I had the tiger by the tail. Uh, it was another fellow and I who had, uh, I'll use a polite word, acquired uh, a 50-foot racing sailing boat <laughs> uh, in Santa Cruz, California, also known as Canna Screws, California, <laughs> um, and sailed to Hawaii, and it was going to be paradise. Every day would be Saturday, nonstop bathing beauty, sailing the balmy seas, yada, yada. Uh, and it was a nightmare in every which way. And that was, you know, right after I got out, out of that business, um, that was the basis for my first novel, Whirl Away. And it had all the earmarks of a first novel, the, uh, the endearing uh, innocence and simplicity of the thing. Uh, but that book was, uh, Whirl Away was uh, optioned for a movie. Uh, it was optioned two or three times. You know, the, the odds on a movie being made are about mm-hmm. 4%. But you make some money from it. Yeah, a few bucks. It wasn't a lot. Yeah. I didn't feel right. like holding the guys up. It was a young production <laughs> crew, and uh, I thought, you know, and my agent was great. He said, no, no, we, they got more money. I know it. We're going to get it. I mean, no, 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 no. Give it to them. I'd rather see the movie. Yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but a greater honor, because it did materialize, was that book was on the uh, Maui County Library Hot Picks list mm-hmm. for 15 years. Mm. Uh, and and I, was, I was honored. And I think the reason was that it did not romanticize the charter trade. It told it for what it was. It, 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 well, I don't want to say anything bad, because this was 1983. Mm-hmm. It, it, it was down and dirty. It was, it was drug-ridden, and it was a lot of fun, a lot of theft, a lot of... You know, hook or crook. It was an adventure, which I've always, you know, uh, gravitated towards. Uh, you can call that a compulsion or a, a criminal <laughs> inclination. I don't know. <laughs> it's always been fun. <laughs> <laughs> and that and World Away was published in '95. Uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I want to read that one. <laughs> it's, it's you know it's it's rough. I got to tell you, it's yeah, rough, but good. but it's it's a real it's a real honest, close to the bone adventure. So, okay, so you were in the charter business, so to speak. And after that, uh, I told you, you know, we had a tiger by the tail, mm-hmm. and I was fairly traumatized, uh, literally. I, I think I had post-traumatic stress disorder. I, I was real shook up physically, mentally, emotionally, certainly financially, and I didn't do anything for 18 months. I couldn't complete a sentence. And I finally realized that that business I had been in was a good business except for the boat, you know, maintaining a, a, a very expensive sailing yacht, uh, it, it takes more than, than I had to give. Um, and I gave it anyway. So uh, put a bunch of snorkel gear, charge it on the credit card, the one credit card I had that was still workable, and uh, came up with the uh, weekly format. And it was virtually a, a vertical growth curve after that. It took off. And I have to say, you know, I, I tried many, many, many things. I, one of my favorite quotes of myself is, I've never really had a job. <laughs> uh, you know, one thing and another. Uh, and, and, I, and I would say, honestly, I really tried hard to make a bunch of those things work. Uh, and the snorkel business was the one thing I didn't try. And I think it was a function of the, uh, the trauma, which leads to indifference. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you stop trying, that's when things happen. And this just, it just took off. I was looking for maybe a couple bags of groceries. <laughs> for, for this week's hustle, it just took off, and and I another function of the trauma was really a dark attitude. Uh, I I had been beat bad, and so the ad copy and the promo promo I use that word loosely copy everything was dark, borderline hostile, and they loved it. <laughs> <laughs> Go figure. I I did, and it is if I got. You know, kinkier, nastier. They loved it more, and um, Snorkel Bob, the legend, was born. Mm-hmm. And I've tried to become, you know, certainly more polite, more circumspect, and times have changed. Mm-hmm. I don't know that they would love that anymore. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, the, 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 the two flows converged, and here we are. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Writers on Writing. I am with Robert Winter, also known as Snorkel Bob, um, novelist, writer, activist, um, most recent book is Flame Angels, published by Iguana. Would you like to read a little bit from Flame Angels? Sure. Okay. Uh, let me just take a second to sure. set the scene here. Um, anybody, whether you scuba dive or not, I'll just tell you that it's, it's not that tough. It's really easy. Uh, and when people realize that, they become far uh, more courageous than they thought they could ever be. The catch is that the 150 ways to kill yourself instantly don't go away. Mm-hmm. And so you get people making foolish mistakes because they see how easy it is, and they, they tend to take it for granted. So our hero uh, in this scene, this, I'm going to start on page 50, is breaking a few fundamental rules. A, he's going alone, very stupid thing to do. He's going at night, and, you know, the inky depths scare the, the pants off most people. Uh, and, he, and he's, he, well, I'll just begin it and read it and he's taking his camera for the first time and anybody who's ever tried to photograph anything underwater knows that it takes four hands uh, and that's with a point and shoot if you have a, a, a real camera rig it, it's, it's demanding okay and this is his uh, first solo night dive where he encounters something he makes a series of errors in judgment and they lead to uh, a moment of epiphany and character development okay He turned suddenly to a presence felt rather than seen, and on coming nose to nose with a giant moray eel, he gasped. 
eel wasn't so much bigger than himself, unless they could have stood back-to-back on their tiptoes, stretching the eel's curves. The eel would have won by a foot and a half with similar girth. Worse was the moray's presumption. Opening wide in an obtrusive display of very long teeth in many rows crowding the fleshy maw, the eel assessed the plausibility of swallowing the prey before him. Ravid cringed, as it were, to a more palatable size. As his heart and sphincter slammed shut in the face of death, Ravid turned away, one hand grasping his light and the other on his camera, with no hand for the knife strapped above his ankle. Well, what could he do with a knife anyway? Stab a giant moray? He might discourage it, but it could bleed, encouraging others. Or an outright attack might stimulate response in kind, causing Ravid to bleed. Glancing into the ink-black water of his retreat, he opted against the knife. He could make the beach on instinct and compass bearing, but dropping his light would render it pitch dark with no alternative but a surface swim. He would gain nothing by dropping the camera, except the chance for a one-handed knife fight with a giant moray, who would likely be the least of his problems, and a camera could come in handy as a sacrificial chomp for other gregarious feeders. So it was flight over fight, jamming the fear-frozen muscles into overdrive on adrenaline thrust. He sensed a proper course to survival, making a mental note to buy a spare light. But he slowed into knowing the sea is innocent. It's predatory nature based on fundamental need, which is not psychotic, perverse, or similar to human motive. Small fry gobble plankton. Box fish eat small fry, and so on up the menu. Nobody in the sea kills for sport or personal aggrandizement or compensation for lesser attributes or for photo ops or mental derangement. Hunger and defense drive the system. This so-called giant met by chance hails from forebears in a social context far less egregious than my own. So? So the flight stopped a long but short way from the point of origin. So the diver turned to see the giant moray also turning back from the verge, perhaps lured back by the light now shining his way, re-engaged, socially perhaps. Ravid pointed the light askew to avoid blinding the giant. He shone it on himself so the giant could see, among other things, no harm intended, and that he, the diver, would not qualify as prey, not without a severe risk of indigestion and heartburn on so much neoprene, nylon, plastic, and steel. So the giant moray snaked gracefully back to social proximity as the camera rose into place, as the diver's innate skill kept him neutrally buoyant. With the light angled obliquely, the subject was lit with dramatic shadow, overtone, nuance, and clarity. Aiming the camera one-handed, Ravid held his breath. Noise and bubbles ceased. And there in the black water off the point in the faint glow of a tiny nightlight, a tableau formed in which a tentative being assessed the nature and intention of another being of equal uncertainty on a chance meeting in a dark hallway. So the big galoot came on like a stranger from the country with eye contact, cautious curiosity, and shared interest. In near intimacy, each creature scanned the other. One sniffed the strange new fish with the bulbous bug eye. The other made a soft clicking noise as the shutter opened again and again on the eyes, the mottled skin, the dilating nostrils, all four of them, and hundreds and hundreds of teeth, some in need of flossing, and all defying a neat tuck into the maw. The eel breathed as eels do, opening and closing to push water over the gills and pursing a word. Aloha. Giant moray eased to apparent bliss and beatitude and communion never before seen, much less photographed. Hmm. Thank you. That was Robert Wintner, reading from Flame Angels, uh, published by Iguana. So talk a little bit about your process in terms of writing and, and you know, getting your manuscript underway and finishing. Do you have readers and um, or a writer's group, or do you at some point hand it off to somebody and share it, or do you wait till you have a draft? Talk a little bit about all that, what, whatever sort of, you know, is triggered. Yeah. I've, um, I've dabbled very, very slightly in uh, seeking the opinions of others. I've always lived fairly... Uh, rural and so you know social contact isn't that um i I mean with other writers it's just Mm -hmm. not that available and i've found that you know uh writing's uh it's a a lonely pursuit i shouldn't say lonely it's solitary you do have your your work to keep you company and it is pretty solid company if it's if it's moving as it should uh I, i 
to me, when you get into a writer's group, you're going to run, um, uh, and, and believe me, these, these comments are based strictly on my personal uh, assessments. Mm-hmm. And, and I have found that you, you run, when you run into groups, you may or you may not meet someone with dynamic range, talent, and insight. And you're more likely going to meet people uh, fairly lacking in those things. It's just the way it is. And so I have found groups to be limiting. Now, they can be a great help to people uh, who need that kind of help, who need company, who need another voice to say you're doing the right thing, stay with it. And I can tell you uh, from my other experience in photography that often the key to success is being blind to your own shortcomings and inadequacies. I look at pictures I took 10 years ago, and I think, Oh, God, what garbage. And I remember taking them and thinking, whoa, look what I did. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's a, it, it, the same corollary holds for writing or photography. So, you know, groups might be helpful to some people. I never found that sort of thing helpful. In fact, I can remember uh, the first group I was ever in, which was a college class, and hearing people who didn't know my, I mean, that was my opinion, uh, critique my stories. And, you know, and that's who's going to read your stories anyway. So it's, mm-hmm. it's all fair. Uh, but uh, the short answer to the question is no. Uh, I, I think everyone has to be everyone has to face the very tough what should be the very toughest editor in the world, which is self. And you face that tough editor every day. Meaning, you write and you rewrite and you rewrite. The hardest part of writing a book is the beginning. W- what am I doing here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> what is? What do I got? Where is it going? And, you can't think about that. It's like, again, standing at the edge of a cliff and wondering, should I go? Should I put my hand over my crotch? Should I hold my nose? What should I do? For, you, you jump. <laughs> Start laying it down. <laughs> That's all. Right. Uh, and, and it doesn't matter if it's any good. Then you go back. And, and if it's trash, that's easy. You throw it away. Uh, more often than not, you get something to work with. And I think most people who've tried this process can tell you, then it gets easier. If you have something to revise, it's much easier than than needing something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's just what I do. I, I would say that my average manuscript has uh, has been rewritten, I don't know, seven times, 15 times, whatever it needs. Uh, I would say that I, I, I rewrite less now than I did 30 years ago uh, for two reasons. One, I think I get closer to write on the first time, and two, is I'm lazier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot more work. We have a lot more to talk about, so all of you out there, stay with us. We're going to talk more about writing. We're also going to talk about fish and Hawaii and Robert's activism, so uh, don't go anywhere. Stay right with us. We'll be here for another half hour. Be right back. see you go come back baby let's talk it over one more time my heart's full of sorrow mama aching tears gone 24 hours child seem like a thousand years Come back, baby, let's talk it over one more time. Talk it over before you go away. Come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. 
Signals, the only weekly news commentary radio broadcast that features a dog named Molly. Weekly Signals, with Nathan Callahan and Mike Kaspar. News with a bite. Friday mornings at 8 here on KUCI 88.9 FM. Radio that keeps on giving. Listen to Writers on Writing every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific Time on 88.9 FM, KUCI, in Irvine. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. And hello and welcome back to Writers on Writing on KUCI FM in Irvine. We're broadcasting from the University of California, Irvine campus, and on the web at KUCI.org. And this show, join the other shows on my blog, writersonwriting.blogspot.com. So many shows that are uh, posted there over the years that you can find and listen to anytime you want. It will also go on my website, penonfire.com. You can also find other info there about salons. I think we have one in January that's just forming where uh, we're going to have an editor and some agents uh, come down. So that, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. We've done it before. Uh, we've actually had agents nights in, I think, July of 2011, 2010, 2009. We're going to have one this year in January agents and an editor. In any case, I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. I have been here with Robert Wintner. His most recent novel is Flame Angels, and he is also a fish activist, and I want to get into that a bit. Um, let's bring him back on. Hello there. Hi, Barbara. Before we get into into fish and what you're doing, um, I'm curious, you know, along the lines of what we were talking about before the break about... Um, you know, when you hand your work off to others, if you do. do you, after you finish a draft then, since you don't necessarily share it with others until it's really ready to go, do you let it chill for a while before you pick it up again to, to polish and revise? H- how does that work for you? Uh, that, that's a real challenge. I find actually that I don't, but I, I most often wish that I had. Uh, it's, there's nothing as, there's a sense of urgency, uh, and so that's what I think makes people hurry, but, uh, anytime, and, and I think most authors will agree with this, that when a book comes out, uh, it's really a great feeling to pick it up and read it, and within the first few pages, damn, <laughs> I wish I'd changed that a little bit. And, you know, it, 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 and again, it's a two-edged sword, there comes a point where you gotta let it go. Uh, it's like, you know, no, nobody ever built a perfect house. Nobody ever wrote a perfect book. So you get down to short strokes and you, and you send it out. I think probably the best answer is to deal subjectively. If I finish a book, uh, it's tough, but I like to wait six or eight months. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, you know, I call it freshening your eyes. Because once you go over and over and over and over and over a manuscript, you can't see it anymore. Uh, after, and you let it sit for six and eight months, chill it out, as you say. Uh, you come back and it's you, your eyes are fresh. Yeah, you know the story, but line for line, it's still fresh. And it's so hard to do. You know, we're all so impatient. We want to get it out there, and letting it well, letting it chill is a is another uh, test yeah, of patience. Greatness and immortality are waiting, right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, let's talk a little bit about fish because uh, since I uh, visited Hawaii in June and and then had you on the show this summer, I have been all the more concerned with what's what's going on over there. And you, um, in November, you accepted a position on the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society Board of Directors, which I, I believe is new since you were on the show, the other show in the summer. Will you talk about that? Well, sure. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've associated with Sea Shepherd for uh, a long time. I would say uh, about 11 years, a little bit earlier than that, actually. And I, I went on a voyage. I've known... 
Paul Watson, who's the, the head guy there for a long time. Um, I've known him as a friend and also went on an expedition in 01 to the, uh, the Windward Islands in the Caribbean. Uh, and it, it was successful in the sense that the objective was to, you know, make an incident, make a scene uh, that would attract media attention. Uh, that year, like every year, the Japanese government was very focused on uh, ending the international moratorium on whale hunting. And uh, the IWC is the International Whaling Commission. It meets at a different part of the world every year. That year was meeting in London. And uh, the Japanese government figured out that the IWC function, that, that's who rules the, the moratorium, and, and the vote is one nation, one vote. Well, in the Windward Islands of the Caribbean, you have many island nations. Uh, and I can't remember all of them, but I remember it was St. Lucia, Antigua, Barbados, uh, and then three more. Uh, and the Japanese had gone, come into each country and spent about $3 million each to build these what they called fish processing plants that was actually for whale meat. Uh, and the Japanese don't even eat whale meat anymore. They eat it more then. That was 10 years ago, but it's not good. Uh, anyway, and, and, and the government of St. Lucia, we pulled into Castries Harbor. They swore that no pilot whales were taken there for food. They, they don't call them pilot whales. They call them blackfish. And um, the fellow who's now making the rounds with his movie uh, Confessions of an Eco-Terrorist, uh, and believe me, the title is a send-up. Uh, his name's Peter Brown. He and I went undercover, uh, and we got some guys coming in with uh, about an 18-month-old pilot whale uh, calf that was still nursing, but it was dead in the bottom of their boat. And they were throwing flensing knives at us, and it was pretty wild, as usual, uh, and Peter's a cameraman, so he got the uh, the photos, and they showed up on the front page of the St. Lucia National newspaper called The Star. I still have it. And uh, we put that out, put the story out to all the media. The All the American media passed. They would not run it, but BBC uh, Caribbean picked it up, and it so it made the airwaves in London where the IWC was meeting, and that trip ran about $100,000, and, and it bought another year reprieve on the moratorium. So that's my experience with Sea Shepherd. So Paul has known, you know, my commitment from that aspect. And then also uh, I'm profiling fairly high right now in the anti-aquarium campaign in Hawaii. It's really a carnage. It's really, you know, butting heads. It's, it's ugly. It's confrontational. It is 100% non-aloha. Uh, and, and so the word gets around. So Sea Shepherd uh, needed and wanted another director, uh, and uh, there's another fella from, who's a director from uh, UCLA. His name is uh, Ben Zuckerman. Uh, ben is a professor of astronomy and astrophysics. He lectures at UCLA. He's a professor there. Uh, and he came over to the Big Island and asked if we could have a chat, and they made the request for me to be on the board of directors. And, uh, and I, I processed for a few days, and I said, yeah, I'd be honored. It's a big responsibility. Hmm. Well, y when we had uh, had you on the show in the summer, on the DeMarco Polo show, I recall something you said which really ha has stayed with me ever since. And, um, and before I say what it is, I, I'm going to just sort of say I had at one time, I think, four aquariums in the house. And one was a hospital aquarium. That's how, how into it I was getting, you know. If there was a sick fish, it went into the hospital aquarium. And um, little by little, I sort of, you know, got rid of the aquariums. People adopted the fish. And now I have no aquariums. And so before I came to Hawaii um, in the summer, I was thinking, oh, it might be nice to have, you know, a tropical aquarium. Or it might be nice to just have, you know, something have fish in the house again, because I love fish. So we went snorkeling, and then I learned about you, and then you came on the show. And uh, my whole uh, uh, philosophy about aquariums, of course, is now totally shifted. Um, and one of the things you said that, that made it shift for me was, um, you said that, y you know, no one would ever consider having a giraffe in their backyard but yet we take wild fish and put them in aquariums in our home, homes because they're 
beautiful and, and, and pretty much defenseless. And we don't think of them as wild animals. We think of them as, you know, creatures we can possess because they're small enough to fit. And um, just very much stayed with me. Will you talk a bit about that, about the aquarium industry, the fish industry, and, and what, what that's doing to Hawaii? And uh, actually, what, what it's doing to any region that has fish, tropical fish. Well, it's, it's making the reefs empty. It's that simple. You know, most people, and maybe you were one of them, I don't know, but most people either don't think about where these fish come from at all, or if they do think about it, even slightly, they assume somebody somewhere is growing these fish. Mm-hmm. They're not. This is wildlife. Uh, the director of the Hawaii Department of Land and Natural Resources was a licensed aquarium collector. He now orchestrates the entrenchment of the aquarium trade on Hawaii reefs. It's heinous. I, my b- belief is that 95% of the people of Hawaii want this to go away. Hawaii is one of your more corrupt state governments, and it won't because there's political interest and, uh, and money and power. Uh, and, you know, going back to <coughs> the charter boat days and the stress and the trauma, uh, my first communion began when, you know, you're in the water snorkeling and there's, there's no phone, there's no TV, there's no radio, there's no mm-hmm. nothing. It's, it's the same appeal that you possibly got when you looked at your fish in the, those tanks. Mm-hmm. And so that's when a very special association began for me. Uh, then on down through the years, uh, living in Hawaii, I had far more occasion than your average snorkeler uh, to get in the water and, and, and make that communion again. When I started taking pictures, uh, I realize now that people look at my pictures and they think, yeah, that's nice, he took a picture of a fish. Uh, and that's, I think, a realistic view on my part. The thing is, if you ever try to get these pictures, you will, I think, appreciate them much more. Uh, one example is um, I have another book out now. It's a photography book called Neptune Speaks. Yes. You got a copy of that? Yeah, I do. I do. Okay. Here's just a brief uh, uh, example. Uh, the aquarium t- tr- trade, uh, I could talk for days on end about this with no notes. Uh, about two-thirds of their catch are herbivores. These fish graze algae. So why should millions of them leave the reefs when the reefs are susceptible to algae overload? Well, they shouldn't. It's a no-brainer. This is one of those nature-killing behaviors that is really uh, violently defended because of the money. Okay, here's what I'm getting at. Among the herbivores, the most taken fish by the trade is yellow tang. Now, anybody who's been to Hawaii has seen a yellow tang. They're the brilliant yellow fish. They're yellow gold, and they look like they're interior lit. Mm-hmm. And uh, aquarium hobbyists want them because of that incredible color. Uh, as herbivores, we also call them surgeon fish, and the reason for that is they have a very sharp uh, spine on the caudal peduncle. <laughs> That's a fancy name for the place between the body and the tail. And if... Uh, anybody approaches them, as they say these days, inappropriately from the rear, they flick the tail, and it is razor sharp. And because it's razor sharp, they call it a scalpel, uh, and that's, so they're called surgeon fish. Okay, if you get in the water, snorkeling or diving, these fish will keep their back ends toward you because that's their defense mechanism. Mm-hmm. It's very difficult to get any closer than, say, 10 feet, uh, and it's, you, you can't get one to turn around. I was over on Lanai, which is, you know, one of the four islands in Maui County, about 50 feet down a place called Cathedrals, uh, look around wondering what I would shoot, and this 10-inch brood tang came up and put one pectoral fin out and one pectoral fin up and said, hey, thank you. And he stayed there while I turned my camera, got him framed, got him in focus, and took the picture. Hmm. That's the cover of Neptune's speech. Mm, mm-hmm. And that's Neptune speaking. Uh, and so, you know, should that be in a home aquarium thousands of miles away? That fish in an aquarium would never come back. Or should that fish be here in Hawaii where he's working and living free? Uh, this is wildlife. And what we know in 2012, press and 13, is that trafficking in wildlife is, is not just a bad idea. Uh, it's a horrible thing to do. Uh, Burmese pythons in Florida 
orangutans from Indonesia, uh, wild birds from South America, lionfish all over the eastern seaboard. That's all from trafficking in wildlife. There is no good end to it. And in fact, it's emptying reefs all over the world. I never expected to get to this point in this campaign. Uh, A, we've made a ton of progress. I'm happy to say that on board, obviously, now is Sea Shepherd. And, and that was one of the things that I had to process in my affiliation with them. And, and they were they didn't flinch. They didn't hesitate. I said, I, I, I'm willing to do this, but I would like for Sea Shepherd to take a formal position on the aquarium trade. They said, we hate the aquarium trade. I said, bingo, then you have to say that. They said, we're in. And they are in. Sea Shepherd is in, and it's a global movement. The Center for Biological Diversity is in. They're a plaintiff against the state of Hawaii uh, for issuing these permits without any environmental impact. They're huge. They, they just won a case against NOAA to, to protect endangered corals for the aquarium trade. Uh, other groups are also in, and, and, and this litigation against the state was filed only a month ago by Earth Justice, mm-hmm. very effective nonprofit public trust law firm headquartered in San Francisco. They have a very strong office in Honolulu. So we're there. I would say that at the beginning, I was extremely naive. And uh, and I referenced before, sometimes naivete is a good thing. The first year we had a legislative campaign in Hawaii to ban the aquarium trade, I thought, well, this is great. Everybody's going to really be grateful for this. And, I mean, these guys came out of the woodwork screaming bloody murder because they all work undercover, under the radar, low profile, because they're doing a very unpopular thing, and many people didn't even know. The guy who I mentioned, who who is an aquarium collector by all practical purposes, who now runs uh, the the State uh, Department of Land and Natural Resources, actually ran for governor, and nobody knew, not even his campaign manager at the time, that he was an aquarium collector. Uh, The current Glover, governor, uh, a real nimrod, his name is Neil Abercrombie, he's not on my A-list, and I guarantee I'm not on his, appointed this guy. And when everyone said, what? He said, well, I didn't know. I didn't know. That's, his, that's political code for, you know, go fish. So uh, that's where we are. Uh, I would say that, um, you know, the big challenge in the campaign has been to give these fish um, the, the, the credit that they deserve as sentient beings. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel, literally, I, I hate to talk sappy, but I feel blessed I, I feel like Neptune is is giving me what I need to tell this story. And I'm getting shots that, I, listen, I, I don't think I'm that good a photographer. <laughs> I do think, let me put it that way, that's mechanically. I can, I can show you buttons on my camera and my housing. I don't know what they are. Uh, but, um, but I do have a good eye, and I do have a good presence. And I'm getting fish uh, presenting me with shots that uh, are pretty Great. Mm. Well, uh, y- you know, I uh, I'm curious why we don't hear much about this. Um, I only came across all this because we um, ended up in one of your sh- your shops, a snorkel bob shop, and and rented snorkel gear and went out and came back and and uh, maybe one of the guys working at the shop started talking about you or something. I, I really don't even remember how, but. Then you came on the show, and I learned more. Um, but we don't hear about this. Yeah, but I think that process, your, your personal process, is happening far more often than you think. And I will say that's the challenge to this campaign. Um, there, there are now, uh, there, there's a core group, and it's getting bigger. And I mentioned Sea Shepherd. That's huge. Uh, and I mentioned uh, Center for Biological Diversity, and I mentioned Earth Justice. Besides that is PETA. Mm-hmm. Those people are nuts. My kind of nuts, and mm-hmm. I welcome them with aloha. They're on board. They know about it, and they didn't know about it last year. Humane Society of the United States is on board. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is animal cruelty. Uh, Humane Society International is on board. So um, I think that any time we address a group and we tell them what happens, uh, jaws drop. What? Well, that's crazy. Yes, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's corrupt. It's mean-spirited. It's destructive. All of those things. Uh, I heard tonight, I have to fly in a couple hours. I'm flying from Maui over to Honolulu for a hearing. 
but they have a so-called rules package. It's in a kangaroo hearing orchestrated by an aquarium collector who runs the state natural resource department. And I heard an aquarium collector on the radio yesterday saying, oh, we're just fishermen. The fishermen hate these guys. They drop nets on coral. They drop anchors in coral. They drop chains in coral. Uh, For me to say this is one thing. For me to show photographs is quite another. Mm -hmm. We have this. Uh, These guys are making a personal attack in the dark on very close friends. Uh, And and, and that's, you know, that ties together the the points of these photography books with the the point of this campaign. Uh, And that is that these these are animals who not only perform a vital natural function, uh, but they are really dynamic personalities. Once these guys net them and put them in bags, A, they're gone from a natural ecosystem, and B, they're going to die most likely in a year. Yeah, I think you said that fish um, living in their natural places can live up to 40 years. This yellow tang on the cover could live 40 years in the wild, and I think that this guy uh, was a pretty old specimen mm-hmm. just because of his size. He's mm-hmm. about 10 inches long. Uh, so that, that's where we are. So, so what can people do who are not in Hawaii, who don't live in Hawaii, but visit and enjoy Hawaii and enjoy snorkeling? People that, you know, we can say, well, just don't have aquariums. But in terms of reaching, you know, the, the masses or reaching, reaching the greater good, how, what can people do? Well, number one, you'd be surprised at the number of people who do have aquariums. Uh, we, I, I would be willing to bet that a lot of people who knew you well didn't know that you had aquariums. Right, right. Uh, and so if you have an aquarium, do just what you did. Let it run its course and don't replace those fish. If you uh, know people who have aquariums, let them know this is not uh, a non-destructive thing. It's very destructive. This is trafficking in wildlife for the pet trade. It's heinous. If you go into a uh, a doctor's office or a bistro or a hotel, and they have an aquarium. Uh, and, and what I'm requesting here is that, yeah, you step up, stand up, and speak up, that you ask the manager uh, for a word and you say, you know, this is really wrong. Uh, my second fish book, uh, Every Fish Tells a Story, was dedicated to a good friend of mine, um, Ed Lindsay, who died a couple years ago. Uh, he had bone cancer. He was 70. He's just uh, very, he was a Hawaii practitioner, very uh, Akamai guy. And uh, he got hooked. He knew this was a wrong thing, and he had to take a trip to California, and he walked into a hotel lobby, and there was a Hawaiian, Hawaiian cleaner ass alone in a big tank, and it was staring out the front window. And Ed was beat from the trip. It had been a real long day of it, and he stopped and looked at that fish, and he said he cried. Mm-hmm. And so he was on board on the campaign until the day he died. Hmm. Uh, so uh, I would say, and, and Ed did have a word with the manager. And, and, you know, I get, sometimes I address school groups, and the kids say, what should we do? And I tell them this, and I say, now, kids, you know, you're going to have to ask yourself. If, you're, if your parents say, no, don't make a lot of noise, should you go ahead and make a scene? And I'm going to leave that up to your judgment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there, there's a little mischief at work here, and um, I'm, I'm real comfortable with it. I, I personally... Uh, I try to approach things with aloha, and depending on the response I get, uh, we take it where we need to take it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is a difficult thing, especially for people who are not comfortable being confrontational or or making scenes. And and that's not required. That's not required. Mm -hmm. Just every comment does have an effect, no matter how unimposing or polite or courteous a person is when they make a comment, and sometimes even more so if they're unimposing and courteous and and soft-spoken, people do remember. That person went to the trouble to make this known. Uh, And you may be talking to a manager who already knows this, who's heard it before, and boom, you're compounding the message. Or it may be a manager who never even, this never occurred to them. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You have to hope for the best. Aquariums are very expensive to keep, as you well know. Uh, and the money can be better spent on vacations, right. photography, whatever else you want. It doesn't right. And, and, you know, it is, as somebody who just, you know, recently came back from Hawaii, 
snorkeling, <laughs> spending a week snorkeling is, is sort of worth 52 years, uh, 52 weeks a year having the aquarium, having the fish in your house, you know, oh, yeah. actually being able to swim. Because I used to look, I had a 55 gallon tank and I used to look at it and think, wouldn't it be cool to get in there <laughs> and I swim with them? <laughs> have that feeling. You can't get in there, but what, and that's not bad. They can't get in there. Here's what is bad. The fish can't get out. Right. They can't get out. They're stuck I, in I there. I addressed a school group. This was young kids, like uh, six to eight. And I said, and, and, okay, everybody look at the walls of the classroom. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a nice classroom. Does everybody agree? Raise your hand if you agree, and all the kids raise their hand. And there was one very cute, pretty little girl in the front row in a dress and everything. I said, now imagine if you could never leave this room. Mm. How old are you? You're six. What if you got to be eight or 18 or 88 and you could never leave this room? And this little girl started to cry. And I thought, oh, God, I've gone too far. <laughs> and I think I did go too far. But I also think uh, <laughs> she came over at age six. Yeah. She came over. Uh, and I consoled her and, you know, gave her a picture, a pretty picture of a fish and mm-hmm. smiled by the end of the session. So that's what happens. And, and, and that's what, you know, you don't have to be six. You can be as old as you need to be not to realize these fish can never leave that room. Right. And, right. and that's what's happening. Well, I, uh, I so appreciate you taking the time here and, and your work in the world for, uh, for fish. And uh, I, I hope... All of you out there will visit Snorkel Bob's website at snorkelbob.com. There's lots of information and, and uh, just, you know. Can I lo- say one more thing? Another yeah, thing go. you can do, if, if you buy Neptune Speaks at snorkelbob.com, all proceeds, all proceeds, 100% accrue to the campaign against the aquarium trade. It is expensive. If you buy the book at seashepherd.org, all proceeds accrue to Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. So those are two easy things you can do. And it's great book and as you know hanukkah is bearing down it is all the holidays are upon us and uh i thank you thank you again for for spending the time well thank you barbara this might sound easy but it's not easy uh, you know it's people like you who care about these things that do make all the difference and we are making a difference i hope so, so i appreciate it and aloha aloha that was snorkel bob robert wintner and uh He's an author, activist, and doing so much good um, in Hawaii, and uh, and it has its reach, right? I mean, changed my view on on little fish, beautiful fish. Go snorkeling with with them, and and everything changes in terms of how you see aquariums and aquarium life. And um, I'd rather the fish stay in Hawaii, and I go to them rather than they come to me. So, once again, thank you, all of you, for listening to the show. And uh, we'll be back next week with more Writers on Writing here on KUCI-FM in Irvine. Have a great week. Do your shopping for the holidays, but stay in the chair as well, because uh, the only way your books and stories and essays and memoirs will get written is if you write them. Be well. <laughs>